Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with Russia in Revolution, and we're carrying on with a chapter of increasing tensions over the course of a year where an attempt at setting up a dual power system to maintain the old order is maybe not going to pan out. Well, maybe it will. We just don't know yet. So let's start this week's reading. Lenin and the Bolsheviks. On the 3rd of April, Lenin returned to Russia from Switzerland, having passed through Germany in a sealed train. Footnote 26. Despite the volley of accusations made at the time and since, there is no evidence that the Bolsheviks were in the pay of the Germans. Lenin had been away from his native land for nearly 17 years, and, apart from a six-month stay in 1905 to 1906, up to this point his career as a revolutionary had been largely one of failure. The left-wing Menshevik Nikolai Sukhanov described his arrival at the Finland station in Petrograd. Quote, He wore a round cap, his face looked frozen, and there was a magnificent bouquet in his hands. Running to the middle of the room, he stopped in front of Chkides, as though colliding with a completely unexpected obstacle. And Chkides, still glum, pronounced the following speech of welcome, with not only the spirit and wording, but also the tone of a sermon. Comrade Lenin, in the name of the Petrograd Soviet and the whole revolution, we welcome you to Russia. But we think that the principal task of the revolutionary democracy is now the defense of the revolution from any encroachments either from within or abroad. We consider that what this goal requires is not disunion, but the closing of the democratic ranks. Lenin stood there as though nothing taking place had the slightest connection with him, looking about him, and then, turning away from the executive committee delegation altogether, he made this Reply. Dear comrades, the piratical imperialist war is the beginning of civil war throughout Europe. The hour is not far distant when the peoples will turn their arms against their own capitalist exploiters. The worldwide socialist revolution has already dawned. End quote. Footnote 27. Bolshevism was always broader than the views of its leader, yet Lenin was the towering figure within the party and stamped his views upon it. He was a man of broad intellect and tremendous industry, of iron will and self-discipline, self-confident and intolerant of opponents. Personally, he was modest, indifferent to the trappings of power, fastidious and capable of deep emotional attachments. Footnote 28. As Alexander Potrasev, a right-wing Menshevik and former comrade, observed, quote, Only Lenin was that rare phenomenon, rare especially in Russia, a man of iron will and indomitable energy, who combined a fanatical faith in the movement with no less a faith in himself. If Louis XIV could say, I am the state, then Lenin, without wasting words, consistently felt that he was the party. End quote. Footnote 29. Lenin's politics were rooted in Marxist theory, yet he had a profound grasp of the workings of power and a capacity to take tough and unpopular decisions and to make sharp changes to policy. He applied Marxism creatively to a country that lacked the level of capitalist development that Marx had assumed, 
not always consistently, was necessary for the building of socialism. Yet theory also disordered his perception of Russian realities. He persistently exaggerated the degree of class differentiation among the peasantry, for example, and called for a policy of turning the imperialist war into a civil war that had no more than a handful of supporters. He expended quantities of ink in denouncing ideological deviations within the RSDLP, from economism to imperiomonism, that were largely of his own imagining. Despite his principled internationalism and familiarity with foreign cultures, he was a product of Russian political culture, particularly in his obsession with ideological purity. His belief in his own ideological rectitude, his unwillingness to compromise, and in his authoritarian habits of thought and action. While he recognized the role of mass action in revolution, the distinctive feature of his thought was his stress on the Vanguard Party, a highly centralized organization whose task was to lead the proletariat through revolution. Ironically, the party that carried out the seizure of power in October bore only a distant resemblance to this model, though it would come into existence not as an instrument of insurrection, but as one of state-building. Footnote 30. The war had convinced Lenin that capitalism was bankrupt and that socialism was now on the agenda internationally. Footnote 31. In Russia, he argued, the bourgeois stage of the revolution was already passing and a transition to socialism was possible. Although he remained unsure how far in a socialist direction Russia could go if her revolution remained isolated. One might question his optimism about the prospects for international socialist revolution, but he displayed a perspicacity about developments in 1917 that he had not shown in 1905, when he was obsessed with armed insurrection and slow to recognize the potential of the Soviet. His detestation of liberalism and parliamentarism, his conviction that the provisional government could not deliver what the people wanted, his implacable opposition to the imperialist war and his appreciation of the potential of Soviets oriented him well to a political situation in which society was polarizing along loosely class lines. Prior to his return, the Bolsheviks were in some disarray. In Petrograd, there were three different party centers, unable to settle upon a clear line of policy. The return from exile in Siberia of Lev Kamenev, 1883-1936, and Yosef Stalin, 1878-1953, had committed the party to limited support for the provisional government, to revolutionary defensist position on the war, and to negotiations with the Mensheviks to reunify the RSDLP. In his April theses, delivered to a largely uncomprehending party, Lenin denounced each of these policies, insisting that there could be no support for a government of capitalists and landlords, that the character of the war had not changed one iota, and that the Bolsheviks should campaign for all power to be transferred to a statewide system of Soviets. Footnote 32. In 1917, the Bolshevik party was a very different animal from the tightly knit conspiratorial party conceived by Lenin in 1903. Footnote 33. Alongside cadres who had endured years of hardship, 
tens of thousands of workers, soldiers, and sailors flooded into the party after February, knowing little of Marx, but seeing in the Bolsheviks the most implacable defenders of the interests of the common people. At the time of the February Revolution, the number of Bolsheviks may have fallen as low as 10,000, owing to wartime persecution, but by October it had risen to over 350,000. Footnote 34. Though considerably more united than the SRs, Mensheviks, or anarchists, the Bolsheviks still embraced a rather wide range of opinion. Even after Lenin's April theses became official party policy, the more moderate gradualist views of Kamenev, erudite, conciliatory, redolent of Chekhov with his spectacles and goatee beard, and of Grigory Zinoviev. Grigory Zinoviev, 1883-1936, a tub-thumping orator dubbed Lenin's Mad Dog by the Mensheviks, continued to enjoy support within the party. Footnote 35. On the left of the party, meanwhile, Nikolai Bukharin, a major influence on Lenin's thinking that imperialism represented the highest stage of capitalism, believed that Russia's backwardness did not in any way disqualify it from moving rapidly towards socialism. Upon his return from the USA on the 4th of May, Lev Trotsky joined the inter-district group. Footnote 36. Trotsky had clashed with Lenin on many occasions in the past, but welcomed Lenin's conversion to the view that revolution in Russia could trigger international socialist revolution. In July, the inter-district group amalgamated with the Bolsheviks, bringing some 4,000 members into Bolshevik ranks, including such highly talented individuals as Anatoly Lunacharsky, 1875-1933, soon to become Commissar of Enlightenment, and Adolf Yoff, 1883-1927, who would be tasked with making a peace treaty with Germany in 1918, and Moise Uritsky, who would become head of the Petrograd Cheka, only to be slain by left SRs in August 1918. Footnote 37. Although Trotsky's views overlapped with those of Lenin to a considerable extent, the overlap was not as complete as Lenin might have wished. Trotsky, for example, does not appear ever to have endorsed the utopian model of the commune state, outlined in Lenin's State and Revolution, a text begun in 1916, completed while he was in hiding in Finland in August, but not published until 1918. In that text, he advocated smashing the old state and creating a much reduced state, similar to that which had flickered into life during the Paris Commune of 1871, in which the police, standing army, and bureaucracy were abolished, and the tasks of government reduced to ones of simple administration that any cook or housekeeper could administer. The control exercised by the Central Committee over the lower levels of the party organization was rather weak. Despite Lenin's demand that Bolsheviks separate from unified RSDLP organizations, for instance, many were loath to do so. At the front, most RSDLP organizations remained unified until September or October, and even when Bolsheviks did split from unified organizations, it was often to form internationalist factions. 
In Vitebsk, for example, such a faction was formed on the 3rd of July by 58 Bolsheviks, 11 Mensheviks, and 28 members of the inter-district group. At the 6th Party Conference, held from the 26th of July to the 3rd of August in Petrograd, representatives from the provinces complained that the Central Committee had failed to inform them of crucial policies, such as the adoption of the slogan of workers' control of production, and that they had been ill-informed about the party's planned demonstration on the 10th of June and the July days. Footnote 38. The city committees were the most important agency coordinating Bolshevik activity at the grassroots, and, to an extent, they were left to their own devices. This meant, for example, that the city organizations in Moscow and Kiev could oppose the plan to seize power in October, and the Moscow City Committee, dominated by moderates, clashed with the Moscow Regional Bureau, responsible for activity in the central industrial region, which was dominated by left-wingers. Arguably, far more important in winning the party popular support in 1917 was not so much its organizational discipline, or even its ideological unity, but its ability to talk a language that ordinary people understood, and to re-articulate, in terms of class struggle and socialism, their very urgent and desperate concerns. The Aspirations of Soldiers and Workers There were around 9 million men in uniform in 1917, and soldiers proved to be a major force in mass politics. Footnote 39. Though they lacked the high level of organization of workers, they were more influential in taking revolutionary politics to the countryside, and, ultimately, in securing Soviet power. Soldiers and sailors hailed the downfall of the autocracy, seeing it as a signal to overthrow the oppressive structure of command in the armed forces. Hated officers were removed and sometimes lynched. Lynchings were worst among the Kronstadt sailors, where about 50 officers were murdered. Footnote 40. Celebrating the fact that they were now citizens of free Russia, soldiers demanded the abolition of degrading practices, such as the use by officers of derogatory language, the right to meet and petition, and improvements in pay and conditions. Crucially, they began to form committees from the level of the company up to the level of the front in order to represent their interests. This drive to democratize authority relations in the armed forces was given expression in the most radical act undertaken by the Petrograd Soviet, namely, the promulgation of Order No. 1 on the 1st of March, forced upon it by soldiers' deputies. Order No. 1 ratified the election of committees at all levels, put the issuance of weapons under their control, and advised them to look to the Petrograd Soviet for political direction. On-duty soldiers were to observe military discipline, while off-duty they had full rights as citizens. Footnote 41. General M. V. Alexeev pronounced the order, the means by which the army I command will be destroyed. In fact, the committees were dominated by fairly educated men, such as non-commissioned officers, doctors, clerical workers, and junior officers, who had little desire to sabotage the operational effectiveness of the army. Most soldiers wanted a speedy peace, but did not wish to see Russia overrun by German troops. Nor, initially, was there much mistrust of the provisional government. 
the sailors in Kronstadt being something of an exception in this regard. Indeed, mistrust was probably more in evidence among workers, whose demands, particularly for an eight-hour day, struck soldiers rotting in trenches as excessive. Footnote 42. The many resolutions passed by soldiers called for a constituent assembly, a democratic republic, and a whole raft of social and political reforms, including compulsory education and progressive income tax. At the same time, if the democratization of the army did not mean its disintegration as a fighting force, at least in the spring and early summer, it was by no means certain that it could be relied upon to wage the all-out offensive the Allies were demanding. It certainly could not be relied upon to perform its conventional function of suppressing domestic disorder. When workers took to the streets to demand the resignation of Foreign Minister Milyukov on the 20th to the 21st of April, General L.G. Kornilov ordered troops to leave their barracks and disperse the demonstrators, but his order was ignored. During the July days, however, Soviet leaders were able to bring in troops from outside the capital. Footnote 43. The Petersburg Committee of the Bolshevik Party, it refused to change its name to Petrograd, was quick off the mark in setting up a military organization to recruit soldiers in the garrison into the party and to promote the party's politics. It published a newspaper, Soldatskaya Pravda, Soldier's Truth, which had a circulation of 50,000 to 75,000. On the 10th of April, it became an official organ of the Central Committee responsible for recruiting, agitating, and organizing soldiers on all military fronts and in the garrisons of the rear. On the 16th of June, an all-Russian conference of the Bolshevik soldiers' organizations took place in the capital and was attended by 167 delegates who claimed to represent 26,000 members in 43 front and 17 rear organizations. Footnote 44. The military organization of the Petrograd garrison, where soldiers awaited dispatch to the front, is said to have been 5,800 strong by autumn, although that figure may be exaggerated. Footnote 45. Throughout 1917, industrial workers were the most politicized and organized of the social groups involved in mass politics and the social group that had the most capacity to shape the course of events. Footnote 46. By 1917, there were at least 18.5 million workers of all kinds in the empire, about 10% of the population. In Petrograd and its suburbs, there were 417,000 industrial workers, of whom 65% were metal workers, 11% textile workers, and 10% chemical workers. In Moscow, there were about 420,000 workers, of whom one-third were textile workers and one-quarter metal workers. In the central industrial region, there were a million workers, of whom 61% were textile workers. In the Urals, 83% of 350,000 industrial workers were employed in mining and metallurgy. In Ukraine, there were about 1 million workers, including 280,000 miners and metallurgical workers in the Donbass. This regional concentration of the working class was complemented by concentration in large units of production. In Petrograd, more than 70% of workers were in enterprises of more than 1,000 employees. It was young, male, 
mainly skilled workers, especially in the metalworking industries, on the railways and in printing, who were most active in building a labor movement and in launching strikes. Something like two-thirds of workers were recent recruits to industry, either peasant migrants or women who had taken up jobs in the war industries. Women comprised well over a third of the workforce in 1917. And most of these unskilled, low-paid, minimally literate workers did not have a sophisticated level of political understanding. Footnote 47. Nevertheless, in the course of 1917, they would be drawn into a mass strike movement, would join trade unions, and their disaffection would be given political articulation by socialist activists on the shop floor. Following the general strike in February, workers determined to overthrow autocracy on the shop floor. Hated foremen and administrators were driven out and old rule books torn up. Factory committees were elected, mainly by metal workers and mainly in the state-owned defense sector, to represent workers' interests to management. These committees demanded an eight-hour working day and substantial wage rises to compensate for wartime inflation. Both demands reluctantly conceded by the same employers who had hitherto resisted them. A plethora of other labor organizations came into being, notably trade unions, but extending to worker cooperatives, worker militias, and worker clubs and dramatic societies. Factory committees took on tasks such as guarding the factory, overseeing hiring and firing, ensuring labor discipline, and organizing food supplies. Had economic conditions been more favorable, it is possible that they might have served to establish a form of corporatist industrial relations, since more enlightened employers favored co-responsibility and compulsory arbitration of disputes. However, conditions in industry worsened by the day, and by summer the economy was in freefall. In this context, the committees mobilized to ensure that jobs were preserved and that companies did not act in ways that hurt their employees. Significantly, the factory committees were the first of the popular organizations to register the shift in workers' attitudes from support for the moderate socialists to the Bolsheviks. At the end of May, the first conference of Petrograd factory committees overwhelmingly passed a Bolshevik resolution on control of the economy, and by the time of the first national conference of factory committees in October, two-thirds of delegates said they were Bolsheviks. By that stage, over two-thirds of enterprises employing 200 or more workers had set up factory committees, although more than three-quarters of factories of all types did not have them. Trade unions were somewhat slower to get off the ground after February, and Mensheviks played a more important role in these organizations than they did in the factory committees. By May, about 120 unions were affiliated to the Petrograd Central Bureau of Trade Unions, compared with 38 to its Moscow counterpart. By summer in faraway Irkutsk, some 8,000 workers had enrolled in 20 unions, and in Baku, 27 unions were active, including a Siemens union of 4,800 and an oil workers union of 3,000. By the third All-Russian Conference of Trade Unions in June, there were 976 unions throughout the empire, with a total membership of 1.4 million. 
In regions such as the Danba and the Urals, however, unions never achieved influence comparable with that of factory and mine committees. See figure 3.2. And the coexistence of unions and factory committees led to clashes concerning their respective spheres of competence. By autumn, trade unions were in theory responsible for defending wages and working conditions of their members. By that stage, they numbered around 2 million, and factory committees were responsible for workers' control. The trade unions underwent the same process of Bolshevization as other mass organizations, but a few, notably the printers, chemical workers, and glass workers, held out as redoubts of Menshevism. Whereas workers had backed moderate socialists in factory-based elections to the Soviets in spring, the decision of the moderate socialists, who joined the government in May, to support continuation of the war alienated hundreds of thousands of working people. However, the radicalization of the mass of workers over the summer was driven as much by the speedy deterioration of their economic situation as it was by a desire for peace. Strikes spread out from Petrograd and the central industrial region to all corners of the empire. In July, the number of strikers rose to half a million and reached 1.2 million by October. And as strikes multiplied, employers began to take a tough line, locking out recalcitrant workers and laying off employees. An analysis of workers' resolutions in Moscow reveals that from May, declining wages, shortages, and the threat to jobs supplanted the war as the issues that most exercised working people. The Provisional Government in Crisis By May, the Provisional Government was in crisis. Footnote 48 In spite of the talk of unity of all the vital forces of the nation, the issue of the war had proved deeply divisive from the first. The Minister of Foreign Affairs, Pavel Milyukov, was strongly of the view that Russia must continue the war until Allied victory. By contrast, the leaders of the Soviet wished to bring the war to an end with no side claiming victory. For a few weeks, it looked as though Tseretelli's policy of revolutionary defensism might provide a compromise around which both the Soviet and government could unite. But in a note to the Allies that was made public on the 20th of April, Milyukov made clear that his support for the secret treaties that promised Russia the Black Sea Straits as the fruit of victory. This provoked the first crisis of the government and revealed how tenuous was its support. Soldiers took to the streets to demand Milyukov's resignation and the Bolsheviks bore banners proclaiming, Down with the Provisional Government. They clashed with counter-demonstrators who carried banners proclaiming down with anarchy, down with Lenin. On the 29th of April, the Minister of War, Guchkov, resigned, without bothering to consult his colleagues, and three days later, Milyukov was also forced to resign. Prince Lvov, the Prime Minister, demanded that members of the Soviet Executive Committee join a coalition government to resolve the crisis and it fell to Saratelli to persuade his reluctant colleagues to participate in a bourgeois government. He did so by convincing them that this would strengthen the chances for peace. On the 6th of May, the moderate socialists assumed six places in a coalition government, against eight occupied by bourgeois representatives, giving them limited influence but full responsibility for government policy. 
Having entered the government to hasten the conclusion of peace, they found themselves at once involved in preparations for a new military offensive that was being championed by Kerensky, the new Minister of War. Kerensky's enthusiasm for a new offensive was motivated by a desire to see Russia honour her treaty obligations to the Allies and by the belief that a truly revolutionary army could assist in the creation of a comedy of democratic nations once victory was achieved. General Alexeev, perceived to be too cautious, was replaced as commander-in-chief by General Brusilov. For their part, the Allies had few illusions about the fighting capacity of their Russian army, but they were keen to keep Germany tied down on the Eastern Front. Meanwhile, soldiers were becoming radicalized, thanks to SR and Bolshevik agitators, so it was not at all clear whether morale would hold up long enough for an offensive to be carried out. Kerensky, with a crew cut and wearing military fatigues, tirelessly toured the front, calling on divisions to prove to the world that they were fighting not for autocratic adventurers, but for a free Russian Republic. See figure 3.3. Meanwhile, the Bolsheviks planned a demonstration against the new government for the 10th of June, but were forced to back down when this was condemned by the All-Russian Congress of Soviets, then taking place in the capital. Instead, the Congress agreed to sponsor a demonstration for the 18th of June in support of the Soviet. On that day, to the chagrin of the Soviet leaders, some 400,000 workers and soldiers marched through the capital with banners declaring, down with the ten capitalist ministers and all power to the Soviets. A detail in a newspaper report of the demonstration tells of a tall, thin man with a haggard face who tore down what he called a Jewish banner, expressing confidence in the government, reminding us that anti-Semitism inflected left-wing as well as right-wing radicalism. Footnote 49. On the same day as what became known as the June Crisis, the offensive finally got underway, targeted once more on Lviv, pivot of the 1914-1915 fighting, and the focus of Brusilov's offensive the previous summer. In the event, only 48 battalions refused to take part. For two days the attack went well, but the crack units in the lead became demoralized when those behind them refused to take their place. Between 18th of June and 6th of July, casualties climbed to 1,968 officers and 56,361 soldiers, including 3,860 deserters, and it was crack units that were mainly affected. Footnote 50. By the end of June, it was clear that the offensive had been a fiasco. More shock detachments and death battalions were created, but the army had began to unravel. Despairing of seeing an end to the bloodshed, soldiers now itched to lay their hands on gentry estates. The Bolsheviks, SRs, and other anti-war activists now found a receptive audience for their denunciation of the imperialist war. On the 3rd to the 5th of July, a major crisis occurred in Petrograd, which affected both the Soviet leadership and the Bolshevik party. Historians differ as to whether what is known as the July Days was a calculated attempt at insurrection by the Bolshevik party, Lenin's worst blunder, as Richard Pipes opines, or a fairly spontaneous initiative by rank-and-file anarchist and Bolshevik soldiers and workers who presented party leaders with a semi-insurrectiony fait en compli. 
Footnote 51. On the 2nd of July, four cadet ministers resigned from the government, ostensibly over concessions being made to Ukrainian nationalists, thereby bringing the first coalition government to an end. The same day, the first machine gun regiment, the largest unit in the garrison, with 11,340 men and nearly 300 officers, and a stronghold of the Bolshevik military organization, passed a resolution denouncing Kerensky for the measures that were then underway to move troops from the capital to the front. On the afternoon of the 3rd of July, soldiers of the regiment appeared armed on the streets along with thousands of workers to demand that power be handed to the Soviets. By the evening, counter-demonstrators had appeared on the street and there was shooting from the roofs of buildings. That night, the Bolshevik leadership having earlier called for the demonstration to be wound down, fearing that any attempt to overthrow the provisional government was premature, changed its mind and resolved to lead the movement. Saratelli, now Minister of Posts and Telegraphs, denounced the demonstration as counter-revolutionary. Quote, The decisions of the revolutionary democracy cannot be dictated by bayonets. End quote. Footnote 52. Steps were taken to bring in Cossacks and other reliable troops to restore order in the capital. The following day, even more workers and soldiers surged onto the streets, and that afternoon, with sailors from the Kronstadt to the fore, tens of thousands made their way to the Soviet headquarters at the Torid Palace to denounce the Menshevik and SR leaders for having surrendered to the landlords and bourgeoisie. The Menshevik Sukhanov describes how a hard-pressed Trotsky struggled to pacify the crowd which threatened to seize the SR leader Chernov. Quote, You hurried over here, read Kronstaders, as soon as you heard the revolution was in danger. You've come to declare your will and show the Soviet that the working class no longer wants to see the bourgeoisie in power. But why hurt your own cause by petty acts of violence against casual individuals. Trotsky stretched his hand down to a sailor who was protesting with especial violence, but the latter firmly refused to respond. It seemed to me that the sailor, who must have heard Trotsky in Kronstadt more than once, now had a feeling that he was a traitor. He remembered his previous speeches and was confused. End quote. Footnote 53. By the 5th of July, Troops loyal to the government were in full control of the capital, vigorously crushing the insurgency. With Kerensky demanding severe retribution, orders were issued for the arrest of more than half a dozen leading Bolsheviks, and the party's newspapers were shut down. On the 7th of July, a government of salvation of the revolution was formed in which Kerensky arrogated unlimited powers to himself. The semi-insurrection, known as the July Days, appears to have welled up from the grassroots and to have taken the Bolshevik leadership by surprise, but rank-and-file militants felt unable to resist, or may positively have encouraged, the pressure that was building up among the most radical sessions of the working class and soldiery for action to bring an end to the war and to force the Soviet leaders to take power. Clearly, too, in parts of the Bolshevik leadership, there was sentiment in favor of taking decisive action. On the Moscow Oblast Bureau, for example, leftist Bolsheviks demanded that an armed but peaceful demonstration 
planned for the 4th of July in Moscow, sees the post and telegraph offices and the headquarters of the Russian word, Ruskislovo, newspaper. Footnote 54. But the semi-insurrection received little support in the provinces. Indeed, at the 6th Party Congress of the Bolshevik Party, which took place while Lenin was in hiding in Finland, provincial leaders complained about how ill-informed they had been about the events in the capital. And that's going to do it for this week. We'll be continuing this chapter next time. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. Our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.